Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. If you follow New York state politics at all, you know that elections have consequences. So when a new slate of Democratic Socialists joined the state legislature this year, some took that as a sign of where Democrats were headed in New York. But the secret is that a lot of Democrats here are closer to the middle than you would think. And in the last few years, we've seen some pretty loud voices in the party try to push Democrats to the left. But after Tuesday, that might change. Republicans swept some pretty key races on election day. On Long Island, the DA's race in both Suffolk and Nassau counties went to Republicans. Those offices were held by Democrats. And in Buffalo, Mayor Byron Brown, a Democrat who was backed by Republicans, won re-election through a write-in campaign against India Walton, who beat him in the primary this year. So Republicans are feeling pretty good right now. And they say that momentum could carry into next year's elections. State Republican Chair Nick Langworthy. And I believe that what happened last night, and I'm happy to go in, in, in depth more, and uh, in, in certainly there's an awful lot of victories to point to here, but this was a victory for common sense in getting, setting the table for what will be big victories in a reset for New York state government next year. So lots to talk about. Let's get into it with Karen DeWitt from New York State Public Radio hey. and Josh Solomon from the Times Union. Thank you both for being here. Sure thing. No problem. So Karen, I'd love some political analysis from you. We saw these wins on Election Day. Republicans, Republicans did well, I think, on the DA's races on Long Island, as we just mentioned, the Buffalo mayor's race, which a Democrat won, but he was backed by Republicans. They really got a lot of what they wanted. Yeah, I think it's a lot of signals for 2022 and uh, the race for governor, since it's essentially an open seat, even though Governor Kathy Hochul is there, she's only been there two months because of Andrew Cuomo resigning, and signs for the Democratic uh, primary that's going to happen in June is going to be a crowded field, mm -hmm. that uh, maybe the Democrats should not go as far to the left as they have been, because there seems to be some moderating force here, as we saw in Long Island, which is the region that's often been the swing state in these statewide elections. Going back to the Republicans, after you know many election cycles of going bluer and bluer, I'd say they're at least purple now. That's and what I was thinking as well, because you have the two counties on Long Island, Suffolk, Nassau, they both went red for the DAs. So I'm wondering if that translates to, for one, like on the state Senate. Are we going to see Democrats lose their seats in the state Senate because those Republican areas are now more willing to vote for Republicans? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the GOP has been weaponizing issues like bail reform because there's yes. been a crime spike and people are worried about that. And the Republicans are good at linking that to bail reform, which hasn't necessarily been proven, but it's a narrative that's working and the Democrats have not counteracted it. They're like, no, everything's fine. The crime's caused by something else, but we don't know what it's caused by and that just doesn't work as well. So yeah, I wonder, could uh, the Republicans start making inroads into the state Senate? I think that they're encouraged that they could even win the governor's race if it's a messy Democratic primary. And I have to say, Wednesday morning, that was the first time I actually thought that, because I had not <laughs> thought that after the Trump era. I thought, well, people in this state don't like Donald Trump. They'll never vote for a Republican for governor. But you know, this election made us realize, right, that Trump's gone. You yeah, know? I think that in New York, at least, mm -hmm. Donald Trump is a thing of the past, you know, in most situations, I think. Mm -hmm. He's still going to be there for a little bit. Josh, what do you think this means for next year's elections, especially in this? I'm thinking of the state legislature where 
in the 2020 elections, a new slate of Democratic Socialists, as we just mentioned, um, won election to the legislature. And I think that at the time, people thought that that might be an indication of where things were headed. But what do you think after Tuesday? Well, I think uh, Republican Party Chairman Nick Langworthy was talking a lot about national issues and linking the local to the national, like you were saying, not just the state bail reform laws. I mean, obviously, Virginia and New Jersey, we're seeing Jersey purple, Virginia going red. They didn't have bail reform laws. Right. And I think you saw, especially on the TV attack ads from the conservative party, you had a lot of issues that were linked to the nationals. So a lot of it has to do with where President Joe Biden and Congress end up being. How favorable are they come 2022? And that will likely reflect pretty highly on those down ballot races, no matter how, how much we may know about those races, you know, local voters may know uh, a little less. Right, and right now, President Biden isn't doing that well. Yeah. That terrible, messy pullout of Afghanistan, and then the Democrats just bickering and bickering. They haven't delivered anything. It's been almost a year. So I think that suppresses the votes of Democratic voters. Last year, they were super motivated. We have to get rid of Trump. Everybody was voting early. And now they're kind of like, well, it's a local election. You know, I'm not, I'm not all that fired up. And, you know, that could translate to next year, the state Senate and assembly races, because the Republicans, they're still mad. And a lot of them still think the election was stolen, even though there's, of course, no evidence to prove that. Right. And they're just they're just generally angrier and that gets you out of bed in the morning, I think, and gets you to the polls. Yeah, I think voters, like all they see in headlines, to your point, Karen, is right now is infrastructure bill blocked by this Democrat in the, in the US Senate. So all, they're seeing all these headlines of Democrats maybe want to do these things, but it's just not happening. And I think you're right that that would affect down ballot races, as Josh said as well. Uh, in the governor's race, I, I just wanted to mention this because we had this fantastic press conference from Tom Suozzi on Thursday, Congressman Tom Suozzi, who is considering a run for governor himself. And I think that he came out as the strongest, as far as I've seen, against what he calls the far left of the party. We're talking about the India Waltons, the AOCs, those kind mm -hmm. of people. So do you think that he it could be more viable based on Tuesday? Yes, I absolutely do. And I think that he does, too. That's why he called this Zoom press conference on Thursday. And I was scrolling through, looking at all the reporters on it. I thought it was interesting, too. A lot of the reporters didn't, didn't pepper him with questions. Yeah. But I was there, and we were all there just to kind of listen. What does he have to say? Is he viable? You know, just sort of like seeing, you know, what kind of person he is these days. I covered him when he ran an unsuccessful race against Elliot Spitzer. So he's been mm. around a long time. But he made the case, look people want moderate Democrats. And he's from Long Island. You know, he's kept his seat in Long Island in, in Congress. So I think that, you know, he's thinking, hey, well, maybe there's a window. If the Democratic primary is all split among more leftist candidates, then maybe I could get in. That's a really good point. Josh, what do you think this is going to mean? If Democrats really crowd this primary, we have the governor, we have the attorney general, we may have the New York City mayor, we probably have the New York City public advocate, and now maybe Tom Suozzi. I mean, for one, financially, that's splitting a lot of resources. But for two, it's also splitting ideologies in the party. And I'm wondering if that's going to translate to the general. I mean, I think it's important, though, to remember that what we saw on Tuesday was a general election. Yes. And what we saw in Buffalo in the primary was a progressive win. And ultimately, the governors are going, the Democratic race for governor is a primary. And those voters still may skew more to the left than you know, a Long Island congressman. So I, I think that's important to remember as well. 
also it's important to remember that this was a wake-up wake call to Democrats, the Democratic establishment, to, to progressive Democrats who were saying we need to be bolder. So, you know, we'll see in terms of that crowded race of who can distinguish themselves, whether, you know, New York City public advocate wants, Jermani Williams wants to distinguish himself to the left, and, yeah. and whether, you know, Attorney General Tish James and, and Governor Hochul say, how am I going to jockey with the others? It's just, right. It's so Are they going to get nasty? That's what I wonder. How do they keep it nice, like you know, women are supposed to be, without you know, <laughs> without you know, portraying the other one negatively? Because that's usually what wins. I think it's just going to get messy, and it'll be really interesting to watch politically to see if the state itself is shifting a little bit more to the right. But we'll leave it there. Josh Solomon from the Times Union, Karen Dewitt from New York State Public Radio. Thank you both so much. Thank you. So while we're on the topic of next year's elections, we've got an update on the state's redistricting process. As you might know, the state is drawing new district lines for Congress and the state legislature right now after last year's census results. And it's a delicate process. There's this panel, the Independent Redistricting Commission, that's drawing these new lines. And about two months ago, they released their first set of proposed maps. Now they're working on a final version, but it's not going to be easy and it has to be approved by the legislature. I spoke this week with David Imamora, who chairs the commission for an update. David, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Really great to be here. Of course. So we're actually in the middle of the redistricting process right now. You've released two sets of maps for public input. Can you just remind us where we are in that process? What's happened so far, where we are, and what's ahead for you? Right, Dan. So what has happened is that the, it, I want to just start by saying this entire process has been compressed, compressed from a one year process into three months uh, because of COVID. The census results came out substantially later than anyone ever would have foreseen. Um, so the, the census results came out in August. We put out an initial two initial sets of lines in September. And then we went to the public and we said, we have these two sets of maps. We want your help in, term, in terms of determining how to draw these lines, because at the end of the day, these aren't our lines, these are your lines, and we need your help as average New Yorkers to determine how to best draw these districts. And so after that, going out of that, we will, be go, the, we will take the public's input into account in December and then submit our lines to the legislature in January, um, you know, pen, you know, because of the, uh, the outcome of the referendum, the deadline is January 15th. Can you explain how you do this? When we see these districts every 10 years and they're drawn in ways that some people like, some people don't like, what is the process for you when you're getting down to the nitty gritty, you're trying to decide at the very edge of these districts where you're going to keep a town out, carve a town in, what is going through your mind? What's the process when you sit down at that table? You know, it's extraordinarily difficult, Dan, because you are, we are weighing literally dozens of different factors. We're weighing, weighing communities of interest. We're weighing geographic boundaries. We're weighing what's happening across the state in terms of population. And we're just trying to come together and draw districts that really reflect communities. Um, at the end of the day, the number one thing that drives the maps is the math, is the population, is the results of the census. Um, and so you know, I had, could have the strongest opinions about a certain community and how they have to be kept together. But if the census results force districts to be separate from, or force communities to be separate from one another, that's what we have to do. Uh, so it's an incredibly complicated process. And you know, I would be the first to say it's an art, not a science. Uh, you know, 
I wish that we could put you know the redistricting into a machine and out would come perfect districts, but that's not what how this works, right? It's a human, yeah. You know, there's a human factor to it. There's drawing districts that reflect communities, that reflect people. Um, so it's incredibly difficult, but I think that all ten of us are doing the best we can. You know, we are losing a seat in Congress this year during the redistricting process. For those that are curious, do we know where that seat is being lost in terms of area of the state, or is that something that you have to work through? I guess I'm just wondering, what does it depend on? How do you know where you're going to take that district out and carve something new? So this is a new, another example, Dan, of where the math drives this. And it really, it, the result is that upstate is where the congressional district will be lost. So what has happened is that just because of the way the population uh, was distributed in the census, the the seat that has to be that has to be redistributed is most likely upstate. Um, and both the Democratic and Republican plans uh, have that seat being upstate. So we did see with the first set of maps that you released for public comment and these hearings, there were actually two sets of these maps because the both sides of the commission couldn't agree on one set. And for some, that was an indication that things may not be going well internally. So what's the road to getting to that one set of maps when you submit them to the legislature or when you release them publicly in January, rather? Well, you know, I dispute the narrative that, you know, the fact that we put out two sets of maps is evidence of dysfunction. The state of New Mexico Redistricting Commission put out 11 sets of maps. The state of Colorado put out five sets of maps, right? Because that's how an independent commission works. Rather than us drawing the maps in a smoke-filled Zoom and then presenting them to the public, we're giving the, the public different options and we're saying, tell us which of these maps best reflect your community. We've had people say, both in public and in private, you know, the Republican map is better for our community. And that's something that's really important to me that I really want to know and that we will take that into account when we're drawing the maps. So I would dispute that as evidence of dysfunction. So Tuesday was Election Day, and on the ballot, we did have an amendment that would have changed the state's redistricting process, and it didn't pass. I'm wondering if you had a position on that. Are you disappointed that voters rejected it, or did it not matter so much to you? So I, you know, I, I was a very proud supporter of the amendment. Uh, I am disappointed that it didn't pass. But that being said, we are still chugging along. It doesn't do anything to change what we're doing. Uh, the most important, the most critical part of the amendment, from my perspective, was changing the deadlines that the commission had to work with. Uh, the com when the commission was established in 2014, primaries were in September, and then they got moved back to June. But the problem is that the deadlines that were established for the commission do not reflect that the deadlines are yeah, the primaries in June. So we had deadlines going into February that no longer make sense because if we actually finish in time for February, then boards of elections will be unable to change the maps in time. And more important, the public won't be able to take into account the new ones. Candidates are literally starting to announce their you know, candidacies now, but they need to know what districts they're running. Now that the amendment failed to pass, I'm wondering whether we should give our, our staff members maybe a day or two around New Year's just to be able to take some time off. Um, but these are you know important questions that the commission is grappling with right now. Um, but yeah, the, that's those are things that we're looking at right now. Yeah, some days off, especially when you have such a condensed time frame from what yes. you were supposed to have in the first place. Yes. So I guess we'll be watching in January and see when they're released. Yes. It's a really exciting time for New York. Um, David Imamora, yes. the chair of the Independent Redistricting Commission, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Dan. Really appreciate it. 
So stay tuned on that, and we will link to the full set of maps on our website. That's at nynow.wmht.org. In the meantime, an update on the state's plans to reduce gun violence. Daryl Camp is here with more. Daryl. Thanks, Dan. So 2020 was a difficult year for New Yorkers on multiple fronts. The rise of the COVID-19 pandemic precipitated higher unemployment rates. And at the same time, many of the state's major cities saw a rise in violent crime. That prompted former Governor Andrew Cuomo to declare a gun violence emergency in July of this year. That emergency expedited funds for violence interruption programs like GIVE, the Gun Involved Violence Elimination Initiative. And under GIVE is the Snug Outreach Program. That's not an acronym. It's actually just guns spelled backwards. Snug held their biannual conference and training in Albany this week. I spoke with Damon Bayco, the Deputy Commissioner of Youth Justice with the state's Division of Criminal Justice Services. He says that Snug's approach is a unique one meant not to replace but supplement the efforts of law enforcement with credible messengers. And these are people who are from the community, who've been in the community, who have lived some of the same lifestyles as some of these young people that we're working with. Um, so they know them. They know who they are. If they don't know them, they know their uncles, their fathers, their mothers. And, you know, they know what some of these kids are up to because that's what they were, used to be up to. So they can identify the young people, um, talk to them and work with them and hopefully show them different alternatives. He says all of the reasons for increases in gun violence aren't clear, but one of them was certainly the pandemic. Because when New York went on pause, that means we went on pause. That means that there were no more hospital visits. That we, you know, we're communicating with our young people through using FaceTime and, and phone calls where before we were seeing them in the neighborhood, on the street, where they were. So all, all of that went on pause, too. So there were a lot of things that were in play in our community. Baycoat says that overall things seem to have improved this year compared to last year and are trending in the right direction. Thank you so much, Daryl. Moving on now to the environment, New York's cryptocurrency industry is growing and fast. If you don't know what crypto is, it's basically virtual money, and sometimes it can be worth a lot. And you don't always have to buy it. There's this thing called mining where someone can win cryptocurrency on the internet. But that requires a lot of energy. So one facility near Ithaca actually bought an old power plant to power their crypto mining operations off the grid. But locals say that's doing some real damage to the environment. And the state now has to decide if the facility, called Greenwich, should have its permit renewed or shut down. And that could set a major precedent for other crypto facilities in New York. For more on that, I spoke with Assemblymember Anna Kellis, a Democrat who represents the area. Assemblymember Anna Kellis, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. So we are talking about this facility in the Finger Lakes. It's owned by Greenwich and it does cryptocurrency mining, which I don't know what it is, so we can get into that. But from what I understand, it's causing some pollution in the area. And I don't really understand that. I, I get the issue, but can you explain how this is causing this carbon impact in your area? Yeah, so I'm going to step back and explain a little bit about cryptocurrency mining. Please. Um, so w we have uh, fiat currencies, or bank, right, uh, government currencies. Everybody understands that. Uh, so if you go to an ATM uh, and you put your card in, what happens? It asks you for a pin, 
right? So it validates that you are who you say you are before you're allowed to do any transaction. Right. And that is a fiat currency or a government currency. So a cryptocurrency using blockchain technology, which is instantaneous but decentralized, which means that no one entity controls it like a government, uh, you have to validate the transactions. So there are different methods to validate a transaction. And there is one type that's called proof of work. There's about 16 different types. There's one type that's called proof of work. And that is a system where for each transaction, there's a complicated mathematical equation that's assigned to that transaction. This is the one that's competitive. The most important point is that the mathematical equation is, is basically a series of numbers from zero to infinity, each one of them. Essentially, I'm simplifying, but uh, there is no software that can be designed that would make you have a greater chance, um, because it's more efficient, of solving the mathematical equation than I would. Which means that brute force is the only way that you can solve it, which means right. that the only way you could have an edge over me is if you have more computers. The larger amount of computer processors that run at the highest speed 24-7, the more Bitcoin you will win. So there's two ways to get Bitcoin. You can either buy and sell it on a, a digital exchange, or you can try and win it. And in this case, it's competitive, and it uses a phenomenal amount of energy because of the consolidation of computers. It's just so complicated. It's so weird to me that we can basically like create money by doing math. I mean, not as obviously the, the computers. So, so you have these computers powering 24-7, trying mm -hmm. to earn this Bitcoin or win this Bitcoin. And so the pollution comes from that energy use, I'm assuming? Right, so it comes from multiple things, but primarily the energy use, right? So if you have 30,000 computers, which by December 31st, uh, Greenwich will have 30,000 computers, you have them running 24 seven, Anyone who has had a laptop on their lap for too long notices that their lap is kind of warm, yeah. very warm, right? So it's the heat and also the energy consumption, trying to minimize the costs to uh, earn Bitcoin, maximize profits. Greenwich bought their own power plant. So if they make their own energy, they use it in-house behind the meter. They use the water for free to cool the entire power plant system of making the energy. The water from Seneca Lake? Right. So they okay. bring in, yeah. So they pull in from the lake about 130 million gallons of water a day. Its impact is on obviously the water, obviously the wildlife, and the GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, um, are maximized because they are now going to be maximizing uh, the use of their air permit. Now they're getting closer to using that maximum. So the air, the impact on air, DHG emissions, and the water impact are, are significant. So if cryptocurrency is here to stay, then how do we do this in a way that it's not destroying the planet? Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question. So I have two bills right now that are active and uh, will be um, sort of re-engage with them in, in, in January when the session opens. One of them, 7389, is a bill that would create a three-year moratorium on cryptocurrency mining, uh, proof-of-work mining, in uh, power plants that use any form of fossil fuels, you know, some or all fossil fuels, and also would require the DEC, uh, the Department of Environmental Conservation in New York State, to do a full environmental impact assessment, evaluating the impact on air, water, and greenhouse gas emissions 
um, in the context of our climate goals that have been established by a law that was passed in 2019. So what I want them to do is evaluate that and say, can we get to net zero that we are uh, by law now required to do by 2050? if we are simultaneously allowing unregulated and unfettered increase in cryptocurrency mining in the state, and simultaneously we're trying to get on to fully renewable. And there's one other bill, which is 7768, and that one would require that all of the retired power plants relinquish their air permits. So we have a situation right now where we have about 30 retired power plants in upstate New York because they couldn't compete anymore on the market, which right. they are the most inefficient. Those are the ones that are at risk of being purchased. Right now there are two, Greenwich is one, the North Tonawanda facility is another that's starting. And they basically reopen the old permits that they had when they were fired for energy consumption or energy uh, creation for the grid. So if this law passes, they would have to relinquish those and apply from scratch under the more rigorous environmental guidelines that we currently have. So both of those could significantly help address um, and, and, and hopefully prevent uh, an excess use of greenhouse or creation of greenhouse gas emissions as a result of this uh, type of operation in our state. It is such a complicated situation. So we'll see how it shakes out down the road. Assembly member Anna Kellis, thank you so much. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for covering the topic. And in a statement, Greenwich defended the facility saying, quote, this is New York. We have incredibly tight environmental regulations. Every ecological impact is carefully tracked, measured, and publicly cataloged. Yet our critics cannot point to a single piece of data to support their claims of damage to the region. They've also purchased enough carbon offsets that it's now carbon neutral with plans to reduce emissions in the future. So we'll keep an eye out for that. But we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.